Today, we again find the Pharisees trying to corner Jesus. It's Tuesday. I know it's today is Sunday, but in this week, it's Tuesday, and it's been Tuesday for the last several parables. And they've already failed a few times to solve their Jesus problem. However, being relentless, they have retreated, regrouped, and have come back with a new tactic, a new solution, a new trick up their sleeves to try to trap Jesus. So, so far in this last week before the resurrection, the Jewish leadership has flat out rejected Jesus and the truth that he stands for. They have shown their hypocrisy by allowing greed and theft in the temple, but railing against Jesus' actions. And seeing the chief priests and elders question Jesus' authority to do what he is doing. And that's just part of what is happening on Tuesday. The Pharisees and Jesus have a truly complex relationship, like most relationships. But I have to ask myself, why were the Pharisees making things so difficult for Jesus? I mean, all of Tuesday, difficult, difficult, difficult. And I came up with a few reasons, and there are three that are popular. They must have been jealous. They could not stand it because they were envious and suspicious of his popularity. So jealousy could have been one of the reasons they were doing this. Or because he exposed their phony righteousness for what it was, all show and no substance. So they were a little embarrassed and perhaps a lot angry that he exposed them. Or because they feared that he might stand for a social rebellion. As a conquered people, they feared that Jesus somehow would lead an insurrection, cause another uprising, and so bring a bloodbath, and they wanted no part of that. Yet, I think there is a fourth reason, and it doesn't get much attention as the first three, and that reason is that that they failed to see and understand the truth of Jesus and his message. Or they saw it, and would not believe it. Now, either one would cause them to act the way they did towards him. The end, no matter what the cause, the end is the same. They railed against him. Now, before we dive more deeply into the passage this morning, I want to focus just for a little bit on that fourth choice, truth. There's a part of our passage that many commentators pay minimal attention to, at least in my study, they paid minimal attention to it. And that's the last part of verse 16 that says, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Frankly, even though their goal was to flatter Jesus by telling them that he told the truth and was an honorable leader and a teacher, the Pharisees fell into the trap of mistaking their truth for the truth. Now let me repeat that. They they mistook their truth for the truth. And and don't we have that tendency also? And the Pharisees were not alone in their misunderstanding of the truth. A couple of days later, as we read in John 18, 37 to 38, even Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? There was a truth problem. Pilate asked, did not bother to listen for an answer, and then ordered Jesus crucified. 
2,000 years later, we're still asking the same question, believers and non-believers alike, of many things, what is the truth? So let me characterize it this way. Capital T, about that big, oh, that big, versus little t, American Sign Language T. So big T versus little t. At a high level, there are only two types of truth. One absolute based upon fact and God's design, and I call that capital T. The other is made up human manufactured fabrications that suit all kinds of purposes, but based upon opinion, perspective, or even outright lies that seem to gain widespread acceptance as truth. I call that little t over here. And they are decidedly different. Sadly, many today turn to the internet looking for the capital T of truth and for inspiration in truth searching. They usually find the little t truth, but often mistake it for the capital T truth, if you're following that analogy. Don't let me lose you. It's important. And that is sad because there's a lack of discernment in that space. In the whole internet space, there's a lack of discernment. And research has shown that there's one favorite place that many go to find their favorite fortification of fact. TikTok. Hang in here with me. For those who do not know, TikTok took off in 2020 with short dancing and comedy clips supplying much needed entertainment at the start of the pandemic. It helped content creators to easily make videos without much planning or resources. The key here is entertainment without much planning. Not news, not fact, not truth, entertainment. To show you how sad truth searching has become, a Pew Research Center survey taken just three months ago, November 2023, showed that a growing number of U.S. adults regularly get their news, which is supposed to be always truthful, from the titan of turpitude, TikTok. 33% of adults between 18 and 39 now rely upon the video sharing platform for serious news. But that's okay because 48% of their peers get their serious news from the reliable refuge from reality, Reddit. <laughs> this is true, this all came out in that survey. Now, if, however, if you can't relate to that, if you're older than that age group, 15% of U.S. adults between the ages of 30 and 49, which I see a lot there, reported regularly getting their serious news from the platform. But again, that's okay, because 41% of their peers get their news from the facile finery of fact found in Facebook. And to take a word or turn from those who I think should know better, I mean, I think they should know better, 7% of U.S. adults between 50 and 64, and 3% of adults over 65, said they regularly get their news from TikTok. But again, that's okay, since 20% of those age groups get their main news from the always abiding, affable, and authentic, again, Facebook. 
They turn to the internet to find the truth. Now, it wasn't really any better 20 to 25 years ago for the millennial crowd, where, because social media did not exist, uh, they got their main news and social truths not necessarily from Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, or Bernard Shaw, and those who recognize those names are in that age group, uh, but from the much more reliable, The Daily Show, the, <laughs> the Colbert Report, the always satiable Saturday Night Live, the ever-obligatory Oprah, and of course, The X-Files, where the tagline was, the truth is out there. <laughs> somewhere, it's out there, somewhere. Maybe under a rock, who knows. So accessing social media or Wikipedia or entertainment shows for truth in news is what many do today, as we see, but they are completely unreliable sources, sources of the capital T truth. It seems as if the more information we access online, the more difficult it can be for us to tell the difference between what is real, what is false, what is true, what is untrue, or what is reality, and what is fantasy. It is as if we know more, have access to more, but understand less and less. And don't get me started on AI. Artificial intelligence just raises that bar exponentially between truth and untruth. So it's no surprise that we're in a paradoxical situation where we think we have more access to the capital T of truth, but we really do not and few can even agree on what truth is, capital T or small t. Does that strike a chord with you? I mean, you've been responding, but that probably does strike a chord. Have you seen it in play? Can you relate to searching and not finding? Now, skepticism about truth is not new to just this generation at all. The Greek philosopher Protagoras who lived from 490 to 420 BCE, was a promoter of relativism and said that objective truth was an illusion because man is the measure of all things. This saying, oddly enough, opened his work called, of all things, truth. To many, man being the measure of all things becomes very liberating because it allows each person to discover or make their own little t truth and start believing it. This leads to the real enigma of my truth, which you've probably heard, your truth, which you've probably heard, but no, the truth, which is tough to define sometimes. The problem that this creates is that we have an extremely challenging time stepping outside of our own perspectives, our own biases, and, our, and from our own truths, and it's difficult to discern truth at all, even if it's staring in the face like the Pharisees with Jesus. The truth was staring them in the face. And the Pharisees, like us today, when living outside their own pers inside of their own perspectives, puts us into both a position of believing something perhaps very sincerely, very honestly, very passionately, but that may be just totally wrong. At that point, 
when we start not believing the authentic truth, uh, at that point we start not believing the authentic truth even if we can find it. When you work under the little T of truth, when the little T of truth is fluid, ever-changing, then we put ourselves in the confusing position of Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.1, listening to the serpent when the snake says, did God actually say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree? Well, it's not what it says, but that's what I said. You shall not eat any of any tree in the garden. Jesus believed, as true believers do, the written word of God to be the capital T truth. In his final prayer to the church, given just before he went to the cross to die for us all, Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. So let me lay this out for you. Truth, capital T, is truth even if no one believes it. Untruth is untruth even if everyone believes it. According to R.C. Sproul, all truth is God's truth. This means that any truth discovered through scientific inquiry or other means derives from God. In other words, God is the source of absolute truth. And any truth we discover is simply a reflection of God's nature, not man's nature. It goes all the way back to Genesis in that in the beginning God created, in the beginning God created truth. To accept that Scripture is the Word of God and worthy of our belief and worthy of our worship, we must first believe in the absolute, that absolute truth exists, capital T. Now, why did I divert us from this passage to talk about, for a while, truth? Not only because people today have a huge problem distinguishing truth from untruth, but it sets up today's passage where the Pharisees had the same problem in discerning the absolute truth of Jesus. And it was, I believe, central to how the Pharisees treated it. And we've seen that over the past few weeks. So let's jump into our passage. Let's look at the start of our passage, Matthew twenty-two fifteen, and the first part of 16 that says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees want Jesus out of the way, in the worst possible way. Despite his indirect and, according to them, blasphemous claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God, they cannot arrest him directly. Why? Because Jesus is just too popular with the people, at least for the moment. Now, if the Pharisees can get Jesus to say anything that sounds like rebellion against Rome, the Romans might just remove Jesus all by themselves. They might take care of the problem for the Pharisees. The Roman Empire was more than willing to execute Jewish rebels trying to start an uprising. At the drop of a hat, they would take care of it. Jesus, of course, was not trying to cause an uprising. And we see this in John 18, 36, that says, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. He made that clear. That is one reason this plot by the Pharisees, in hindsight, would never have worked. They thought it might, so they took a shot. Now we must understand that the Pharisees and the supporters of Herod, the the Herodians, were bitter enemies. They did not like each other. They served two different purposes. The Herodians were the elite. They were the rich. However, hatred can make for some strange partnerships. And for the purpose of this partnership, it wasn't truth. It was trying to set a trap for Jesus, and on that they both agreed, yep, we need to trap him and we need to get him. And they wanted to do it by embarrassing Jesus very publicly. Unlike the leaders of the Jewish people, of course, Jesus was not afraid of the, of the crowds or of the truth. While the leaders' motive was treachery, they spoke the truth about Jesus, even though it was through clenched teeth of envy and hatred. In their minds, Jesus was more likely to fall to flattery in their minds. From younger people, of course, he does not and would not and did not. They told Jesus in the last part of verse 16, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Ironically, the words they are saying are true. Jesus is sincere. He does teach the way of God truthfully, and he does it with integrity. But it's not what they meant. Their last compliment is meant to prime the pumps for the sort of answer they are trying to goad out of Jesus. If he shows no partiality or deference, then surely he will not pay homage to the Romans at all. So they hold their collective breaths, put aside their many differences for a moment, and come together to pose Jesus a question that they hope will put him into a tricky situation. That question is in verse 17 that says, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? By asking him a yes or no question, they think they have Jesus in a lose-lose situation. If Jesus answers no, the Herodians will surely act and go to the authorities. But if he says yes, then those who want to see the empire fall will think that Jesus has gone against, has scandalized their cause. Of course, like he did with the Pharisees, when the Pharisees asked him about his authority, Jesus does not play their games at all. Instead, as he often does, Jesus raises the stakes by taking the conversation to a higher level, and he does that as we read in verses 18 and 19. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, Jesus' pockets are empty, but his opponents have no trouble supplying a denarius on demand. Now, these Pharisee neophytes, the Pharisee disciples who are students of the Pharisees, these Herodians, the elite group, these Jewish leaders in training have not fooled Jesus with their flattery, but he does agree to answer the question. 
But first, he reframes the issue subtly by asking to see the coin used to pay the tax. Kind of like, if I can find it, I couldn't find a silver dollar, so all you get is a half. That's the Kennedy half dollar. Jesus does not say whether the tax is just or unjust, fair or unfair. The system was the system symbolically captured by the image of Caesar on the coin or the image of dead presidents on our coins. The significance of the image is the same as a seal. It's a marker of a grander meaning. In this case, it was a reminder that everything in the empire belonged to Caesar. Everything and everyone had a place because of Caesar. As Jesus answers it, paying the tax is to simply give back to Caesar what Caesar gave to them. An empire to live in, work to do, food to eat, money to earn, is the fruit of the Roman system. Now, as an aside, the tax in question is a poll tax or also a head tax, and it first came into Judea about uh, 6 AD when the Romans took over. There is no visible benefit from this tax. They had other taxes that they could see it going to work when they paid it, but not this one. It simply disappeared into the emperor's treasuries. While the amount was not appallingly high, neither was it trivial. While the value of a denarius fluctuated, Matthew 20, verse 2, suggests that at the time it was worth one day's labor. And today, and I looked it up, the average price for a 2,000-year-old coin is about 50 bucks. That's about that much silver in it. So continuing in our text in verse 20 and 21, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is that? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to put Jesus into an untenable position, into a demanding situation. And if he said it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he asked, he risked alienating the Jewish people who resented Roman rule and who will give offense to the Pharisees who hate the empire's constant meddling, not to mention the harsh burden that this flat tax placed on the poor. On the other hand, if he speaks out against the tax, it will not take long for the Herodians, who are loyalists to Rome, to take news of such seditious talk back to the authorities and get the Romans to act. Jesus, in his infant wisdom and divine insight, responded to the question with a command. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus, with that one statement, gives his word of hope and calling. Yes, we give to the nation states, but we also give to God the things that are God's. The, the way the Greek works here makes this sentence quite powerful to the ears when you, and I don't speak Greek, so I can't speak it for you. Jesus does not repeat the verb in the second clause, so he just repeats God twice. In essence, the Greek reads, the things of God to God. To say it a separate way, the Jews had become subject to Caesar, therefore the lower duty of tribute was due to Caesar. The higher duty of obedience 
was due to God. Caesar and God are not, therefore, opposing terms. Submission is due to Caesar because submission is due to God, as is ours. For us, we have a lower duty of tribute to the United States, state of Oregon, county of whichever county you live in, and a higher duty of obedience to God. As citizens of God's kingdom, we owe him service and fruit. In, in this sentence, the facts leave no doubt as to what is due and to whom, nor does obedience to the one necessarily clash with obedience to the other. At that time and in our own times, the deep importance of the words defines the nature of the kingdom of God. It's not a Jewish theocracy excluding Rome, but a divine supreme kingdom existing side by side with the Roman Empire or any other empire or kingdom or nation then and today. Caesar might have an empire, but God created the cosmos. This teaching brings us back to Genesis and the creation of all that there is. It was a reality much bigger than Caesar's empire. God put God's stamp on the earth by making humanity in the image and likeness of God's very self. We have God's stamp and image on us. Now the significance of us being in the image of God is the same as a seal. It's a marker of a grander meaning. In this case, it's a reminder that everything marked with God's image, us, belongs to God. Everything and everyone has a place because of God. Our very existence, everything we are, not just what we own or earn or contribute to society, belongs to the one who, whose image it bears. And we bear God's image. It turns out there's a lot more to give back to God than to Caesar. This statement serves as a stark reminder for us as Christians today. We, we live in this world, and we are bound by its laws and responsibilities, whatever they are for us. But our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. We must give to Caesar what belongs to him. We also give, must also give to God what belongs to him. So, the big question is, what belongs to God? How do we do that? What does that look like for us? Our hearts, our souls, our worship, our relationships with one another, our love, and our allegiance, just to name a few. We are bound to give ourselves to God, to follow his commandments, to love one another. Those are people sitting next to you, to love one another. We also need to live lives that reflect his glory. We must acknowledge God's sovereignty in every aspect of our lives. We must allow him to be the guiding force behind our decisions, our actions and values because of his seal that is on us. Now the final verse, in verse 22, shows how this one statement affected the crowd, especially the leaders that came to confront him. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away, just like that. Wow, okay, off I go. Jesus' profound and brilliant answer to a challenge about paying taxes left his questioners speechless. They marveled. 
They had no more argument. They were put aside. Their flattery and trickery ended up with them being hugely impressed with Jesus and marveling at his wise and profound answer. They lost this skirmish and simply walked away. Now, had they stuck around, I wonder if the conversation, and this is supposition on my part, uh, if the conversation would have turned to what uh, it is we offer back to God as his image bearers. Jesus had a few, or the scripture has a few answers for that. And I wonder if Jesus would not have reminded them the same thing that he's been teaching them all along, that obedience produces the fruit that proves the root, that God invites us as image bearers too, as recorded in, in Micah 6, 8, do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with God. And that the law and prophets hang on these two commandments as recorded in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 to 40, which we'll study in a couple weeks, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now John can't get away without a quote from Spurgeon, neither can I. <laughs> so according to Spurgeon, men are saved and the same men that are saved come to a knowledge of the truth. The two things happen together and the two facts very much depend upon each other. God's way, God's way of saving men is not by leaving them in ignorance it is by knowledge of the truth that men are saved. John Piper adds to that by saying, all truth exists to display more of God and, awaking, and awaken more love of God. That's the capital T of truth. That's its purpose. And that's the goal of knowing the truth, capital T, and knowing it is God's truth. That is, it's not a virtue until it awakens desire and delight in us for the God of truth. And that desire and delight are not complete until they give rise to words or actions that display the truth, capital T, the truth of God in our lives. Now, how do we get there? The true gospel is a message of hope and salvation that is central to the Christian faith, central to our faith. It is the good news that God has supplied a way of salvation for humanity through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And we can never, ever forget that. The gospel is not necessarily about the human, the man part of Jesus, but rather the message that he brought to the world. The gospel is about real freedom that comes from utterly understanding the gospel. It is about living free from guilt, fear, doubt, and especially the anxiety that we don't measure up somehow. The gospel is not about rule-keeping. It's not about doing virtuous deeds to earn salvation. Rather, the gospel is about accepting the gift of salvation that God has provided through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the truth with a capital T. Something the Pharisees may have understood maybe, but did not, could not, or would not follow. How about you? What's your response? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
Thank you for making us in your image, and thank you for allowing us to be a part of your family. We thank you for being with us, and we've studied your word this morning. You have shown us your ways, and now we ask to guide our steps to live in us that we may be people of steadfast hope. Help us to truthfully hear your words that challenge us to give you the things that are yours. Help us to be holy people who receive your word with joy and live your message with love. And we ask these things in your precious son's name. Amen.